Hi, I'm Katinka Belomo, and this is the Climate Academy, a podcast featuring conversations with fellow climate scientists. We talk about inspiration, we walk you through ideas, and discuss challenges and breakthroughs, having fun in the process. Make sure you stick around for the fun facts game. The guest of this episode is Kaustab Thirumalai, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona. We talked about him growing up and studying in India and changing his path from chemical engineering to climate. We also talked a lot about networking in academia. The paper we discussed is about how sources of methane in the atmosphere from paleo records are related to orbital variability and the implications for modern climate change. Learning all the things we need to take into account when analyzing paleo records was eye-opening. And a spectral analysis of long paleo records is absolutely interesting and potentially applicable to other fields. So I recommend you listen on. Right. Uh, thanks, Cal, for joining me today in uh, this episode of the podcast. So uh, can you briefly introduce yourself, uh, where, where you are from, where you got your PhD from? Absolutely. First off, thank you very much for having me as a guest on your show. I'm really excited to see where it goes. Um, so I'm Kaustab Thirumalai. I'm currently an assistant professor at uh, the University of Arizona. And I'm primarily a paleoceanographer and a paleoclimatologist uh, who also works with climate change and climate dynamics. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, I did my master's and my PhD in geological sciences uh, over there at the Jackson School of Geosciences. And then uh, I, I briefly did a postdoc at Texas uh, working with uh, Pedro Dinizio. And then I went over to do another postdoc at Brown University. And I worked with Steve Clemens over there. And uh, in 2019 uh, summer, I, I moved here and started off as an assistant professor over here. Cool. And are you from the U.S.? Where did you grow up? So I think you might be asking because I have an American accent. But, you do, uh, but uh, <laughs> I spied on your CV, so that's why I'm asking. Like, I'm curious yeah. about different yeah. patterns. So. So, my, uh, so my American accent comes from the fact that I lived in Michigan uh, from my first grade to fourth grade. So I did mm -hmm. uh, my schooling at a young age in, in the U.S., but I'm born and brought up in India, in Bangalore, India, South India. Then after my fourth grade, we moved back. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did all my sort of middle school uh, and upper schooling in India, and I did my undergraduate actually in chemical engineering in India as well. Wow. And I only moved to the United States for my graduate studies in, in 2010. Wow. So you, you were born in India too? You came Correct. to the U.S.? So yeah, and your parents don't, or, or do they speak English too at home? Yes. Yeah. yeah they, they I mean, so, so a, a lot of uh, yeah, Indians tend to grow up speaking English, uh, uh, you know, either through schooling or uh, through uh, uh, just con conversations with friends mm -hmm. at home or whatever. But uh, yeah, so we moved when I was, uh, I think, five years old to the U.S., mm -hmm. And obviously, I wasn't probably as versatile in understanding or fluent in English, in terms of American English, especially uh, when we moved. But I think uh, if you're young, you, you tend to yeah, grasp definitely. things. No, it's, I think it's amazing you kept this accent. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and, it's, and to me, it's not it's it's not conscious. It's subconscious. It's almost uh, just uh, you know I have a work accent and or or you know it's, it's communication. Yeah. I guess so. You know when I go back to India, which I do fairly often, and I collaborate with a lot of Indian climate scientists and Indian geologists. I don't talk with them in an American accent, though. It's yeah, just definitely. how it works. That's so, we're more interested in, say, computer science or electronics mm -hmm. or mechanical engineering. But to me, I was always interested and fascinated by chemistry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, given that I was kind of on the track to go towards engineering, I wanted to pick the sort of branch that had at least some of uh, aspects of chemistry in it. So that's how I ended up choosing chemical engineering and going along that route. But kind of quite quickly, I realized uh, uh, I was not necessarily that interested in, in chemical engineering. I really like the subjects. I mean, a lot of the subjects are helping me out right now, even as a, as a professor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, taking things like heat transfer and uh, you know fluid mechanics uh, and uh, uh, subjects along those lines. However, I just was not able to get excited about the applications um, for like say chemical plants or fertilizer plants or sort of upscaling uh, things what chemical engineers do, which is very important. It's just, it just was not for me. So at the time, what happened was during my second year of college, uh, all of my peers who were far better students than I was, I was a bad student in chemical engineering, no interest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they all went off to, you know, do internships at companies or at science institute institutions, and uh, I was just not feeling it. And so I went back home uh, in Bangalore, that's where I'm from, and uh, there is a, 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 a scientific institute in Bangalore called the Indian Institute of Science, and it's actually a very uh, prestigious and an old, well-established institution that's one of the top science institutes in India. And I and several of my friends were doing internships there with other professors at different departments. So I used to just go there and say hi to them during their lunch break or, you know, <laughs> uh, go shoot the breeze, as they say here. And uh, I started to basically try and see if I could get interested in going and trying to apply with uh, some professor to work on something. And I came across this department called the Center for uh, Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences, CHAOS. And that really uh, struck me as an interesting uh, uh, premise, you know. And as I started sort of mailing people and started to learn more, I, I was uh, I quickly realized saying, "Hey, you know, they're applying the same type of stuff: fluid mechanics, uh, uh, you know, heat transfer, momentum transfer, but to a system that I'm very much interested in: the oceans and the mm -hmm. atmosphere, and uh, looking at like uh, the monsoon, which is a tenet of every Indian growing up in India, you know." So uh, that's kind of what got me interested along those lines. And you, you might believe it or not, but I was actually very close to dropping out from my chemical engineering or not doing anything with it. And I was very interested into going into the forestry services in India and becoming mm -hmm. an administrative officer for the Indian forestry services. And uh, you know, with uh, sort of uh, advice from my father and a couple other people, I kind of realized that I would not necessarily be able to apply any sort of scientific uh, uh, techniques or scientific approaches if I were to go into an administrative position. And I was firmly interested in the sciences. And uh, 
that kind so that coupled with me finding the atmospheric sciences or the oceanic sciences mm -hmm. department really pushed me into saying hey you know i can use the same type of scientific tools that i'm learning in engineering but for applications that i'm very much passionate about and interested mm -hmm. in and so i got uh, taken into a laboratory by a professor prasenjit ghosh who uh, uh, i'm still a collaborator with and uh, uh, is a good friend of mine and he kind of put me along the lines of he was working on the paleo monsoon at the time and, mm -hmm. and setting up a mass spectrometer. And so I got entrained into his lab. And that's kind of the pathway in which I uh, started to think about applying to graduate school and went into ultimately got into the University of Texas. So a little, you know, long winded, but uh, I, I think uh, it makes for a, a good story. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I had a kind of not the same experience, but similar because also I went into physics and actually here in Italy, even now, there is not really an option to do meteorology or physical oceanography in undergrad. There is, I think, so only one university in Bologna that um, gives that degree, but it's certainly not um, not common. And especially here in Italy, we don't change towns to go to colleges. I mean, I stayed where I grew up. I mean, unless you're from a small town, then you go to the nearest big town. But I grew up in a, one of the biggest towns in Italy. So I stayed here and I did physics. And by chance, I say by chance, because now they're kind of shutting it down. There was at the time, there was a, a degree, a master's degree. Also here, the thing is that uh, bachelors are three years old, uh, three years long. And everyone does masters too, but they are not the masters the same way they are intended in the United States. Yep. Are mostly courses too, mostly classes. Right. It was there was a masters. It was in environmental physics, and so that was that was the the thing that I was most interested in. And I wasn't even a great student from <laughs> physics itself. Uh, also, was doing a bunch of other things. I was rowing, so I was like very much into training, like three hours a day. So I didn't really have time to. to study yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. When I got into my master's, I became a very good student because I really liked it. And that's how, so that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting how- So in, in like the circumstances that you grew up in, how many roughly, like, you know, what percentage would you say of people actually move to different towns to do university in a different place? Is it very minimal? Is it non-existent? No, 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 it's pretty, it's, so I'd say um, maybe it's like, 50% but those of those so 50% I'd say stay in their town and like 50 the other 50% move but the majority of those 50% maybe like third the like more than half those 50% are from close by towns so they maybe they just take a train every day or they just rent a room in the in the city for the, and they stay during the week um, and I say but the vast majority of people that move to towns like mine, Turin and Milan and northern towns or, or even just to Rome. But there are people from the south and they move to towns in the north to pursue engineering degrees because um, Milan and Turin are they're two polytechnics and yeah, they attract all of the right. the yeah, the people that move and also most most international students we get are, are those pursuing engineering degrees. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's not uh dissimilar in india to some degree and uh you know for 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 example my engineering college was about a seven hour train ride uh west of bangalore on the on the uh 
Western coast on the Arabian Sea coast of mm -hmm. South India. Uh, so it was an overnight journey, but you yeah. know, it was, it was, uh, uh, worth it because that was a prestigious reputed, uh, mm -hmm. engineering college, you know, so, so mm -hmm. not, not dissimilar. Yeah. Well, I guess the difference is here. Um, you kind of, the, the level of education you get in most, like all this public university, universities, mostly public here, but it's kind of similar, except, you know, the polytechnics, which are, you know, during Milan are the best, probably Milan is the best now, nowadays. Uh, but, um, Got it. yeah, so for me, it didn't have any sense to go to another town. Like, it was just like a lot of money that didn't have, have sense to spend because I would get, get a, sem a similar, you know, level, level of, education. of education yeah, yeah. wasn't yeah. um yeah got it so cool and um so you um what um what kind of questions are are you interested in lately uh so really right now i'm kind of you know starting off my research group and my and my lab group here in the university of arizona and uh, I just have uh, two new graduate students, and uh, I'm expanding in different ways than I originally envisioned. Uh, primarily, I'm sticking to my bread and butter, so to say, which is isotope geochemistry and, and trace element geochemistry towards application of uh, paleoclimate and paleoceanography. Uh, but in, amongst those projects, I'm still very much interested in Indian Ocean research in general and uh, trying to look at how we can infer, uh, you know, information about climate change and climate change processes in the Indian Ocean by using the paleoclimate record as a, as a laboratory. So I'm working on different timescales in the Indian Ocean. And the Indian Ocean, of course, is broad. Uh, so one aspect of the Indian Ocean that I'm working on, uh, which is one of the central aspects of the Indian Ocean, is, is the Indian monsoon and the Asian monsoon mm -hmm. system. But another tenet that I'm working on, uh, along with Pedro Dinezio and uh, Jessica Tierney and others, um, is looking at understanding uh, sort of climate, equatorial climate variability in the Indian Ocean, looking at air-sea coupling and how we can try and uh, make any sense of uh, how those aspects changed in the past. But apart from the Indian Ocean aspect, I'm also still continuing some uh, work that I've been doing for my PhD and my postdoc looking at uh, the Atlantic Ocean and primarily looking at ocean circulation in the Atlantic. Right, so uh, we have some this, overlap there. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, although, you know, it's very, very difficult to try and extract decadal scale uh, processes when you go back in time. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, apart from that, I mean, I, I, I'm very much interested uh, by a lot of things as are a lot of people. And I tend to collaborate a lot with a lot of interesting people. And so uh, I tend to have uh, projects in different parts and that keeps me busy and I like it. I like the freedom of having, you know, to be able to work on multiple different aspects and multiple different time scales. All right, so now that you mentioned that, I think it would be interesting if you had like, so for a lot of early career scientists, uh, there's like, thing of collaboration how do you start a new collaboration let's say you know you have an idea do you hit someone up say hey i i'm or like do you, how, how do you start like you start working on something and you try to get someone involved or you start by with a discussion what's your strategy and 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And something that, uh, uh, you know, when I reflect back on it, a lot of it tends to be, uh, you know, to some degree chance and to some degree being in the right place at the right time uh, and having sort of exposure and having the opportunity. So a lot of it, when I look back, it's really, I have to thank my own advisors and my own mentors who would say, hey, you know, you should go to this conference or you should go to this type of uh, uh, sort of workshop or things like that. Mm -hmm. And to me, I really think those are really uh, um, sort of opportune places for collaborations to naturally happen. And uh, in particular, small meetings and small conferences, I think I've made a lot of good collaborations and sort of lifelong collaborators that I've met at small mm -hmm. conferences. Not to say that the big ones like AGU don't have that tendency, but uh, as I'm sure you know, it's a little more difficult there because the logistics are more difficult having so yeah. many people and so many things going on at that time. Yeah, it's a different but, kind of conference, I'd say. I'd say it is, it again. is, it is. Um, but really outside that, I have been involved in collaborations where I've not met people and uh, it really stems from either them mailing me or me mailing them and saying, uh, and, and really it comes from a place of mutual respect and mutual sort of uh, interests. Uh, and I think, you know, you have to be very careful in terms of choosing your collaborators because you can. And uh, at the same time, you, you have to sort of, uh, uh, sort of be vulnerable to some degree and to, and to really go into some scientific project knowing that uh, two heads will always be better than one or three heads or four heads, you know, more people and more expertise, I think can always benefit programs. And in my field, we work a lot with geological samples and ocean, uh, uh, you know, sediment samples and corals and things like this. So when, when you get into the sort of the logistics of collecting these proxies, collaborations tend to fall out naturally because you have to work with so many people and different countries and international collaborations mm -hmm. uh, to really sort of uh, uh, A, obtain the samples in the right way with permits, thinking about the actual, uh, you know, collection aspect, but at the same time to make sure that uh, samples are well curated and you really have the experts who are collecting those samples that can tell you the information mm -hmm. that might impact your interpretation ultimately of uh, climate change that, that you're inferring from them. So I was also lucky in that regard that I had the opportunity to sail on an international ocean discovery program expedition. Uh, and so these IODP expeditions, you know, they involve 30 scientists from all over the planet and you're, on a ship for two months with 30 different scientists who have completely different goals. Sometimes the goals are aligned, sometimes they're not. But in that type of environment, you tend to naturally end up making collaborators and sometimes enemies, but uh, <laughs> it really is a good place to foster collaboration. So it's, it's a mishmash of all of these. If, if, you know, if you're asking me what I would tell younger uh, sort of early career people in terms of how they would increase their collaborations, I would just say, you know, try to increase your exposure to other people and uh, let it come from a place of mutual respect and mutual interest. But I don't see why you cannot sort of cold mail people and and sort of uh, try and initiate things as well. So conferences. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think I think that's like especially important now. You know that I think uh, at least for the next few years, I foresee you know having less interactions or you know maybe you are also from some 
part of the world where it's not easy to travel, you know, certainly, um, I mean, I also did my PhD in the US. I have an opportunity to travel around a lot, but certainly there are countries in which this is not as common, but I mean, I don't see how nowadays it cannot be done. I mean, we have all the instruments to do it, uh, to do like and virtual. How has your experience been in terms of forging collaborations? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't have, I, I guess, a, a, such a successful <laughs> experience. I think, um, well, I also was out of time. I mean, I mean, it w I did some collaborations up to the point where I left, um, but uh, they were mostly during my, I say my PhD, my postdoc, I didn't do much. Uh, again, because I also had just a, a child and so things just got right, like complicated right, right. from the, there on. But um, so, for, yeah, so for my PhD, I, I did um, collaborations. And at some point I decided I wanted to uh, learn to use a climate model. So I met uh, Bjorn Stevens at a conference, and then I managed to get there for a couple months. So that was I, I, that was a great collaboration. But I think that most of the collaborations that I had were more like I was like the student or the junior scientist. I had more like senior scientists, and then I had like um, I guess my main like more um, same level collaborator was um, Lisa Murphy at Radless and she was a pastor when I was a student and we kept collaborating after. And I think now I am doing more collaborations also with other uh, researchers at my institution because I think it's, uh, I'm at a point in which it's just easier because we're kind of, we're on the same, same level. Uh, we have common interests. So it just come, comes more natural. I think it was maybe harder for me uh, when I was at the beginning of my postdoc, like trying to figure like these things out um, until they eventually came natural. So I guess uh, in your case, uh, even in my case, I mean, it's, it seems like networking is a major part of that, right? Like just having access to those types of uh, potential collaborators, senior or same level or mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, I mean, in your case with, say, Lisa Murphy, you guys were at the same institute, I yeah, suppose. Uh, and, I and guess that. that's how it worked for me. <laughs> but also now we are all in the same institute. So I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, but I'm, I'm not saying I'm particularly good at at this. So this is why I was asking <laughs> also for myself. But I guess it also comes down to the nature of the work to some degree, I, right? I, I think mean, so. I think so. In fact, some of the things you were saying, like, you know, I don't really need people to collect data for me. It's um, yeah. so I, I mean, in, in my like in my case, is sometimes it's also a little harder because it's, um, you know, there's always someone who has to lead the work and, you know, you get collaborators to the to the to the point in which they are trying to get just collaboration and not establishing themselves with first author papers. So there is like some, so this is why it probably was easier for me as a student because I was, um, I was the junior. Uh, but I, yeah, I feel, I feel now maybe I, um, I'm able to do more so because I'm more with people at my same level all interested in one topic while before I wasn't. I would say, I mean, to, to just finish up my thought on this, I would say uh, one thing that I was, again, lucky to have had the opportunity to participate in, but it was also a factor of me volunteering, was uh, perhaps you've heard of PAGES, the working groups? Mm, so it's, I... a, it's an organization called Past Global Changes. It's a um, mm -hmm. sort of a paleoclimate organization. 
And uh, over the last 10 years, they've had very successful sort of uh, uh, calls for participation where they've crowdsourced the curation and collection of uh, multiple archive records. So you know how we art, we you know generate these data sets and then we put them online somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if someone's interested, they go and take it. But there's hardly any systematic attempts uh, uh, to like sort of collate all of these and synthesize these data sets until pages came along over the last couple of years mm -hmm. and sort of incentivized this, uh, not by pay or anything like that, but by more of what we could gain by looking at these aspects. Mm -hmm. So I was heavily involved in pages 2K over the last 2000 years. Um, and that was a fantastic opportunity. I mean, I, it was a lot of work for me to be involved and I was one of the younger uh, people there, but there were others too. And it was totally by volunteer and uh, I, so I would really so maybe it's almost similar to like uh, MIPS in the in the climate modeling world to yeah. some degree. I know they're more struck they're more formally structured and not necessarily volunteer oriented, but it's somewhat of a loose analogy. Yeah, um, um, I got to meet several people yeah. that way, and uh, it, it, uh, you know many of my current collaborators I know from those times. Yeah, definitely. I mean. Um... Certain, that MIPS is like certainly something that if you can take part of, they are very, um, not, they lead to a lot of collaborations, but also that depends on what, you know, where you are at. I mean, that's more, you can do that. I mean, for example, now I'm taking part of a MIP, but that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't in an institution that was running models already for CIMIP 6. All right. Um, so for, um, maybe we can move to the paper that sure. you sent to me. Yeah, so yeah. I I was reading it. For me, it's certainly uh, a lot of uh, new information. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so maybe I was wondering if you can um, maybe start talking about it. I, I was yeah. particularly interested in, you know, in the, you know, the big picture, you know, the motivation and the implications of, uh, of your results. And just to clarify, this is the methane paper, correct? Yes, the methane paper. Yeah. I'm going to post it yeah. uh, in the... Sure, sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let me start off with the big picture for this paper. I think there's a uh, two-pronged motivation for this paper. One is that, uh, you know, we want to understand what's going to happen to methane reservoirs in the future with uh, ongoing uh, anthropogenic global warming we know that there are permanent ice sheets that are melting, and we know that uh, permafrost reservoirs in the uh, Arctic and northern latitudes are now being destabilized and are potentially uh, releasing methane into the atmosphere, which is a potent greenhouse gas. And we want to understand how those things are going to, uh, you know, ultimately destabilize. What type of contribution are they going to have? Are they? And I think there's a lot of a healthy scientific debate on this issue, uh, saying where uh, you know some groups say they're not necessarily something that we need to consider as a tipping point or something that's going to uh, cause catastrophe. And then there's another group saying, well, they they might be very important sources of uh, uh, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and it would be a positive feedback where warming increases more, uh, melts more permafrost, and that releases more methane, which mm -hmm. causes more warming, and so on. So there was motivation for us to look into the past to see if we can uh, sort of figure anything about the uh, 
methane cycling in the Pleistocene uh, or over the last. Sorry, uh, interrupt you. Yeah, 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 yeah I had this burning question. Is methane a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide? Or yeah, yeah, yep, okay. yep. The effectiveness of the radiative forcing from methane is higher, is a lot higher than CO2, but uh, the, you know, the uh, trace amounts of methane is less than, than CO2. And furthermore, methane gets oxidized into carbon dioxide. Okay. So it's almost like a double whammy. All that, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, those are, those are issues with methane. So yeah, it's, there is a strong motivation then behind. Yeah. So that there is motivation from that regard. The other aspect is more uh, to do with sort of open questions in paleoclimate. And one of the open questions has always been, what causes methane to vary on sort of glacial interglacial timescales, you know? Is it the same processes that affect CO2? Uh, and that's always been a question because obviously methane and CO2 have different solubilities, they have different properties. And uh, it's not like the, uh, all the methane is being potentially stored in the Southern Ocean, which we think mm -hmm. is what is happening to carbon dioxide, for example. But we know ever since uh, uh, people started measuring methane in ancient atmosphere trapped in ice cores, that there's significant amounts of methane variability when you look back in time over the last mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, 600,000 years or so. And so concentrations there are much higher than today's or lower? Uh, it's not just higher or lower, it's both, but at the same, actually, let me rephrase that. Today's anthropogenic input of methane far exceeds anything that we've seen right. in the ice core. So there's no comparison. Uh, and in fact, methane, the rise in methane is much, much larger than the rise in CO2 as well. Uh, oh, wow. But yeah, yeah it's huge. It's crazy. <laughs> if you want to see a real big hockey stick, you should look at <laughs> methane yeah. uh, more well, than anything else. No, I'm surprised I don't know that as well. I mean, I <laughs> I would think that some important information that everyone should know, and I don't. So that's, yeah. Well, well, and, and it's probably for a reason, right? I mean, everyone focuses on CO2 because it is more of a potent, uh, in the, let, let me rephrase that. It's, it may not necessarily be as potent in terms of its effectiveness as a greenhouse gas, but, but we know that the concentrations and uh, the way in which the residence times work for carbon dioxide, that it is the big knob on the climate system. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's probably a reason why uh, it's not as, say, well, well known. Mm -hmm. But yeah, methane concentrations are rapidly increasing right now due to anthropogenic uh, impacts. And so it doesn't really compare in terms of the absolute magnitude when you look back in time. However, what is really striking are the abrupt changes that we see in the ice core record going back in time. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden you'll start to see during, you know, well-known millennial scale climate events like the Heinrich events or the Dansgaard-Uschger cycles, you start to see really sharp changes in methane. And uh, we've always wondered what, what is going on here? You know, what, what type of reservoirs are getting destabilized and then stabilized to actually change mm -hmm. these, uh, to, to give you such, uh, rapid uh, swings in, in atmospheric methane composition. And uh, the plus point for methane in the ice cores is that the resolution that we are able to detect methane is far better than the resolution of carbon dioxide. So even though we, the ice cores tell us about carbon dioxide changes, uh, we're able to get a better sample resolution just because of the way in which we can measure these uh, gases, trace gases. 
So methane shows these sharp changes when you look back in time. And it's always been a, a mystery ever since people started uh, measuring it. And of course, when I say mystery, there, there are very good hypotheses on what drives these changes. Uh, and so the primary sort of uh, uh, driver that people attribute changes in methane over the Pleistocene has always been the monsoons, the tropical monsoons. And the idea behind that is we know that there are swings in uh, you know, hydroclimate variability in the tropics related to changes in the monsoon. And those monsoons impact how much wetlands you can produce all over the tropics. So if you have stronger monsoons, you're gonna have larger wetland area, for example, like so things like swamps and mm -hmm. things like uh, marshes and bogs and, and all of these uh, uh, aspects, which can rapidly become spatially highly uh, uh, you know, variable with changes in the monsoon. So that's always been attributed as this linkage between monsoon changes and methane changes over the paleoclimate record uh, going back the past half million years or so. And so this, uh, this sort of uh, tenet is also debated because there's another camp that say, well, we don't think it's necessarily tropical changes that are driving changes in atmospheric methane, but in fact that it might be permafrost reservoirs in the Arctic or uh, maybe changes in methane that are uh, related to changes in sea level because you do have uh, strong changes in sea level, abrupt changes in sea level, and maybe they're destabilizing some type of methane that's stored in sediments in the continental slopes and continental, uh, like right next to the coastal areas. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a back and forth, but the primary sort of evidence lines up with uh, the tropical trigger for, for changes in atmospheric methane. So just to come back to our paper, both of these two aspects to understand the methane uh, changes with abrupt climate change in the future, but also to address what might be driving uh, uh, changes in atmospheric methane over the, over the last half a million years. These are the two main motivations for our paper. Cool. And, and, and so let me get a little bit into what we actually did in this paper. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me start off by saying that this paper is completely time series analysis. And yeah, uh, I noticed. <laughs> We don't bring any new data into the into to, for this uh, uh, paper, but what we are bringing in is potentially offering a new methodology to look at the interactions uh, between, say, methane and the monsoons, and ultimately changes in the uh, uh, Earth's orbit that affect the amount of incoming solar radiation, and which people believe uh, is what drives monsoon changes in the first place. So. Our paper is titled Methane, Monsoon, and Modulation of Millennial Scale Climate Variability. And our main focus was to try and extract as much information from these two very, very nicely dated and uh, really uh, state-of-the-art climate records, which is the methane record from the ice cores and the purported changes in the Asian monsoon that are measured in the stable oxygen isotopes of speleothems in caves from central China. So we and wanted to the really ice extract... cores are from where? From... So the ice cores are, they can either be from uh, Greenland, Antarctica, or the tropics. Mm -hmm. There is some tropical ice, but the longest ice cores are from Antarctica. So that's so what we the one, the one on. you used. Okay. Correct. Correct. 
So the idea was to see, okay, we know that uh, people have speculated the strong tie between monsoons and methane on the orbital timescales, you know, from tens, from 20 to about 100,000 year timescales. And what we were interested in is not those long time scales, but the shorter time scales, like millennial scale time scales, where you can have uh, rapid changes in climate in a matter of centuries to a thousand years and sustain changes for a while uh, prior to the climate bouncing back. And so that's mm -hmm. what we wanted to investigate between these two records, between the stalagmite records mm -hmm. and between the methane record in uh, Antarctic ice. And so the way in which we went about this was a pure uh, signal to noise processing methodology. Uh, and in fact, we, we, I was happy to cite a paper from 1931 on this uh, <laughs> that did some uh, electrical engineering signal to noise ratios. But the major uh, sort of theme that we focus on is in our title, modulation. And so we in fact took a cue from a lot of the modern climate dynamicists, such as uh, you know your field, where people look at, for example, uh, changes in ENSO, right? Changes in the El Nino Southern Oscillation, and there are healthy debates on whether the Pacific Decadal Oscillation uh, is a, is just a manifestation of ENSO rectifying the decadal timescale, or there's another camp that says no, no, no. In fact, there is actually a physical mode of decadal variability that mm -hmm. modulates ENSO. Yeah. So this interaction of rectification versus modulation is what we wanted to apply to the Pleistocene record. Mm -hmm. So is it that the shorter timescales are in fact rectifying the longer term averages? Or is there a meaningful uh, physical longer term mode of climate variability that's impacting these shorter term timescales? That was the and, fundamental question we wanted to explore. All right. So just to remind me, so for long time scales, in your case, uh, what um, what the period period and what for, what is for a short time scale? Just to good remind question. me. When, yeah. Good question. Um, so the long time scales that we're thinking about are on the order of about anywhere from 20 to 100,000 years. Those are the primary frequencies mm -hmm. of orbital forcing. So precession, obliquity, mm -hmm. and eccentricity. Uh, roughly, you know, precession is at 19 to 22,000 years. Obliquity is at 41,000 years, and eccentricity is roughly at 100,000 years. So we were trying to look at the effect of these longer-term periodicities mm -hmm. on millennial-scale variability. That's anything less than 10,000 years mm -hmm. uh, uh, periodicity. Okay. So these abrupt climate change events. Yeah. So it's a very simple question to ask: is does orbital forcing make these millennial scale uh, climate change impacts more uh, drastic or not? You know, can the longer term time scale, the background conditions, can they influence these millennial scale events? And it, particularly looking at the linkage between methane and the monsoons. That's kind of what we were looking so, at. So yeah, so basically, if I can just to see if I understand. So if you have this shorter timescales, like millennial timescales events that you for now, let's say are naturally driven. Uh, I don't think we know for sure, but um, let's say they happen and then you say there is something else happening on a lower frequency that can amplify or reduce their their amp yeah yeah their uh, amplitude over you know a lot of time like <laughs> hundred thousand of years 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And the analogy would be something like the seasonal cycle, where we know that uh, daily temperatures can be more variable in winter as opposed to summer. That's okay. that's essentially what we were trying to look at on the longer time scales. Is you know during periods of uh, high precession, uh, when you know there's high insulation coming into a particular latitude, uh, does that necessarily correlate with higher or lower magnitude of this millennial scale amplitude? That's that's essentially what we're looking at. So you got it absolutely correct. All right. Yeah. So well, getting into the find. results. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very interesting. It was very intriguing. Um, so there have been papers and studies beforehand that have speculated independently on these two records that uh, methane in the ice cores is being modulated by the amount of incoming solar ra radiation. And mm -hmm. again, independently, there have been papers, uh, there's been one paper in 2016 that uh, claimed that the speleothem delta ATNO, the millennial scale amplitude in that record, is also being modulated by insulation, by, by mm -hmm. you know, gradual changes in the incoming solar radiation. But no one had really looked to connect these dots, even though there's a strong linkage of on the orbital timescale between these two records, between the methane and the, mm -hmm. and the monsoon. So that's what we wanted to look at. And so what we found was very interesting. So we went about doing this, in a, as I told you, in a signal processing methodology, something that had not yet been applied to either of these records. And uh, we went about it in a very brute force manner. Uh, and I say that term because uh, it's, it's really driven by the mathematics. And uh, so what we did was we essentially stripped away all of the uh, long-term variability and focused in on the millennial scale. And what we did is use this particular uh, function that mimics what is known as a Hilbert filter, which looks at the envelope of those changes. So just trying to see, is there any type of longer term variations in the amplitude of that millennial scale uh, events after we filtered it out? Mm -hmm. So what we found was very interesting. We found that the Chinese Stiliothem Delta ATNO record actually contained no primary orbital frequencies, even mm -hmm. though the raw record by itself is very much uh, uh, correlated with insulation changes. When you look at the high frequency and look at the amplitude of that high frequency, we were not able to find any of these primary orbital mm -hmm. frequencies. So our conclusion was to say that at least in that record, uh, we concluded that orbital forcing was not modulating any of the millennial scale amplitudes mm -hmm. seen in that record. And so then when we applied the same exact technique on the methane record, it was very shocking and surprising to us. We did find these large scale, uh, very significant periodicities in the orbital bands that lined up with the precession obliquity mm -hmm. and the eccentricity. And primarily it was the strongest uh, concentration of variance was in the precession band. So in the 20,000 year band. And that was really surprising to us because that then implies on the millennial scale, a decoupling between whatever the Delta ATNO record in uh, the caves were uh, implying, which could be the monsoon, or there's debate on exactly what that is. Mm -hmm. But certainly in methane, we found a primary uh, uh, modulator in precession. So precession was modulating the millennial scale amplitude of methane. And just as a caveat, I'll put in there that when you line up these records, when you just look at the raw records, you just take it out and you look at it, both have excursions at the same time during these millennial scale events. So for example, the Younger Dryas 
or the mm -hmm. Heinrich events, they all have coeval variability. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at are the amplitudes being made worse or, or not by these background conditions. And we were able to show that in methane, processions had a direct effect. And in the Chinese Spiliotem Delta 18 record, it, it didn't. So why is this such a shocking thing for us? Because it implies a decoupling between these two systems. So by decoupling, mean, you mean that, I mean, at the beginning you said that methane could be related to wetlands, right? Is, is that um, basically what you found that, or like, are you, I guess you're, you know, trying to be uh, not too, uh, how to say, provocative or something, but like, it, does that basically mean that the monsoons and the wetlands are not that much related to methane storage? Yeah, so that's that's exactly where we're headed to is that, um, A, we, it's not that we didn't want to be provocative or not, it's yeah. that uh, the, we are we limited by anything. the understanding of the proxies. Yeah. So if you were to take at face value that the Delta 18 uh, you know, the stable oxygen isotope record of these Chinese biliothems is a direct proxy for monsoon rainfall, mm -hmm. then yes, absolutely right. That would be the implication. However, there are a lot of debates on what that delta it, you know, might mean. And uh, regardless of that fact or not, what this says to us is that on the millennial scale timeframe, uh, precession directly modulates the changes in methane. And Although it could be that the Chinese biliotems are not recording anything related to tropical rainfall and that tropical rainfall is driving the methane, but we can't see it because mm -hmm. the Chinese biliotems don't represent it. To us, what this says is that, uh, you know, that what can cause a direct insulation mechanism to release methane on these abrupt timescales? And this is where we linked it back to the permafrost aspect. Mm -hmm. So it, especially well, in the high latitudes, yeah, especially in the high latitudes where you know that, uh, you know, small changes in the incoming solar radiation can amount to large changes in the actual climatic uh, mm -hmm. impacts that are felt. We speculate, so this is pure speculation based on our uh, sort of time series analysis, but we are speculating that permafrost might be more sensitive to external forcing than we think it is right now. Mm -hmm. And we suspect that you can have rapid changes in methane and destabilization of methane that's ultimately modulated by how much external forcing there is uh, in these upper latitudes, in these higher latitudes. And not necessarily coming from just permafrost, there are multiple different sources. There can be, for example, high latitude wetlands as well. Mm -hmm. There can be uh, uh, what are known as thermokarst lakes, which are like basically frozen lakes of methane that can get destabilized as well. So there are multiple different aspects of the northern uh, upper latitudes. And so basically what we're saying is that it's not too controversial because we can still say that on the orbital timescales, the tropics might be driving methane and the rainfall might mm -hmm. be driving it. But on the millennial scale timescale, we suspect or speculate that uh, we should really reconsider these boreal upper latitude sources. Is there a way to corroborate or, you know, uh, I, I'm thinking about like models or, you know, climate models or other models. Is, is there any evidence uh, for this mechanism from modeling? Excellent question. 
uh, and one that the reviewers caught us on too. <laughs> I but, was not uh, a reviewer. <laughs> no, that's no, not no, really I my expertise. <laughs> no, actually, that's a very good question. And there is some speculative evidence um, where you can see, for example, uh, summer insulation can be a trigger for destabilization of these uh, permafrost shelves, for example, permafrost regions in the Arctic. That we know. Mm -hmm. But what we speculate, again, we sort of lay out a way to falsify our hypothesis. So we suspect that if you have, a, let's say, a fully enabled uh, biogeochemistry model, uh, a model that's fully coupled and enabled with biogeochemistry, so that you can detect these changes in methane, or maybe it has permafrost model uh, coupled to it or so forth. What I suspect is if you run a uh, two background states, one with high precession, and one with low precession, I think that that can tell us whether you can have these rapid destabilizations or not. Mm -hmm. And you know, high precession, low precession models have been run since the 80s, right? We know mm -hmm. Kutzbach and others uh, with Betty Otto Bliesner's work. They've, it's not something new, but what could be really interesting is to couple that with a biogeochemical model and to see whether we can detect these changes in atmospheric methane or not. So that was one way we laid out that our hypothesis could be falsified. Mm -hmm. um, another way would be to actually get a data set of true uh, precipitation variability in the tropics. Mm -hmm. And that's easier said than done. You, you, you can have, for example, uh, other stelothems that are not in subtropical China, but say right from Borneo or Papua New Guinea from the ITCZ region that could potentially also show this. So let's say, uh, but they're not yet developed and it takes a lot of work. You need to have the right samples, whether it's even possible or not, we don't know. But if we have such a record in the future and we talk about this, and this could be even not just from the tropics, it could be even from the Southern hemisphere could, could lead as well. If we find such records, such long state-of-the-art records, we could apply the same time series analysis that we did on, mm -hmm. that we did on the Chinese biliothems and then if we find a processional peak in this a signature of the insulation within the, some of those yet to be developed records, then that is going to put the tropics back in the driver's seat. So uh, we lay out two ways in which we can, uh, our, our speculation could be and falsified. This idea of, of modulation has been applied to any other proxies or any other topics, say in paleoclimate or, yeah, I guess proxies are... Several people have looked into how you can exacerbate or dampen millennial scale events with orbital changes. Uh, there have been many attempts to look at this, but I think up till now, we have not yet had the state-of-the-art climate records mm -hmm. that, come, that, that we were able to focus on. So I, I must say, to take a step back, there is a, a deep token of gratitude in terms of, uh, and, and sort of admiration for those two records. I mean, these are the absolute state of the art and, you know, thousands of people have worked on it and, and different groups. And in particular, uh, you know, the uh, uh, EDC records in Antarctica, that's what they're known as. And the Chinese Spiritum records are a composite work that's being, that really is spearheaded by uh, Hai Cheng and uh, Larry Edwards at the University of Minnesota. And so it's a state of the art uh, uh, sort of climate record because it is so precisely dated. That's what makes it so unique mm -hmm. because in paleoclimate, you're only as good as your age model. And if you, you know, you, you might reconstruct whatever you think it is, but if you're not well aligned in time, 
your results are uh, very difficult to interpret. So that's why these two records, uh, which came out, I mean, the Spilatham record came out recently in 2016. And I think that really is what uh, sort of got us thinking in terms of a more quantitative application of modulation. Cool. All right. Well, um, so I'm going to ask, is there anything else you want to say about this paper? Or, you know, maybe uh, what, um, you know, if it's driving any new research collaboration? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of ways in which we're taking this forward uh, is I'm very excited for uh, uh, the last two, three years, there's been a lot of drilling, ocean drilling for science that's been done around uh, Papua New Guinea and the Western Pacific warm pool. And I think we're going to get really cool records that are going to be published soon that are going to talk about precipitation variability at a very high resolution that's going to rival these records that are going to come out. So I'm very right. this, excited. This kind to, of blows my mind a little bit. So how you get, so you get precipitation records from under the ocean. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, so, I, this is like, it's really, I'm really limited in my paleo climate, but I thought, you know, maybe, you know, the speleotense made sense to me, but uh, yeah. How do you get precipitation data from the bottom of the ocean? Excellent question. Uh, the bottom of the ocean serves as a very nice archive of sediments that are ultimately running off of the continent. So if you're in a near coastal region. I see. Okay. Now I now it makes it, sense. Okay. So you can you can look at, for example, things like uh, the ratio of titanium to calcium in the sediments. And titanium, we know, is only continental. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you have more titanium that's running off and you look at it with respect to calcium, because all of the marine critters, the plankton are all calcium based and they're mm -hmm. raining out in terms of their uh, shells that's adding to the calcium. So if you look at the ratio between what's running off in terms of the chemical uh, uh, composition of titanium versus the calcium mm -hmm. in the sediment, then and you're normalizing it, then you can directly tie that to the amount of runoff that's coming off. Yeah, so that's, it's a very, yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's a so really, really this, uh, uh, high resolution measurement as well. So the continental like distribution was the same basically for the last, or did it change? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm so ignorant really like, because it's kind of, I know it changed, but I don't know when did it come to look like the earth nowadays? Was it like at the time scales you, um, you're looking or before? Also a good question. Uh, when we're thinking about sort of overall changes in the tectonic configuration per, per se, uh, we don't necessarily need to worry about that when we're looking at the last three, four million years or so. Okay. But so, that said, okay. but that said, you bring up a very good point because you can have, let's say an earthquake that changes the way that the river is, is draining. Mm -hmm. And if it's changed to a manner in which it's, it's now going over rocks that have richer titanium than the previous thing, you might be fooled into believing that uh, it was an increase in rainfall, whereas it was not. So yeah. there are a lot more complexities that go into this. And people, I'm not a, an expert on uh, these metal ratios that people work on in terms of the sediment mm -hmm. itself. Uh, I work more on metal ratios in the, in the plankton. But uh, people have found out multiple ways in which you can figure this out. So for example, you can look guess, at- Yeah, you can figure yeah, the history. You can figure that out 
but you can also look at other suites of metals as well and other sort of mm -hmm. uh, signatures and to see, do they all change together? Do they change in the same way? So there are ways in which we can uh, sort of tease that apart. Yeah, it, it but, is certainly a very complicated job. <laughs> to, it's even more complicated than doing the studies that we do. I mean, <laughs> to, you know, to build up all these long-term records, take into account all these different factors that could have changed and come up with clever ways to account for those. I mean, there's a lot going on well and then to ultimately tie it to future changes right yeah <laughs> how can we how can we yeah. understand that absolutely there's a lot going yeah. on but you know that's where i trust in my collaborators and i trust <laughs> yeah. and i trust yeah. their expertise because the bottom line is there's no way you can be an expert on everything right so yeah, you, yeah. that's why that's why we collaborate and yeah. so uh so that's you know just just to get back to your question those are some things that i'm very much looking forward to into in terms of analyzing the time series uh, protocols of those yet to be generated records, mm -hmm. A. But uh, in terms of my own research, uh, I am working on projects where we are developing speleothem records from southern India, so more firmly in the tropics and more firmly in, a, in the Indian monsoon uh, domain. And so I'm in the process of piecing together multiple different stalagmites to build our own long-term time series we're still not at the stage where we're gonna rival these chinese uh, stalagmites mm -hmm. so it's a long work in progress but i'm very curious to see and analyze uh those existing records as well what we're generating to see if we can find some imprint of insulation changes on these abrupt climate change uh, so but, you actually go in the field and collect cool yep Oh yeah, there's if we can do a whole another podcast on, yeah, on crazy sure. cave field stories. Yeah, uh, if you're interested, but <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, unless there is anything else you want to add, I think we can um, uh, we can pass to the um, fun facts game. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I have this pot uh, directly from coming directly from my kitchen, in which I had have unwritten questions and very nice yeah. uh well see i'll draw one out for you and uh they're you know easy fun questions to talk about hopefully all right this is um kind of personal <laughs> don't be worried okay so where do all you right. get most of decor of the decorations in your home for your home where do you where do you shop to get decorations Okay, so the question is, where do I get most decorations from? Decoration, home? I guess. No, I'm not thinking about like uh, holiday decorations, maybe you know, yeah. furniture. I guess that's a better way of saying it. What's your favorite furniture shop? Uh, what's my favorite furniture shop? That's Art shop. Question. I don't know. <laughs> where do you get your stuff from? It's actually a very, it's a very uh, pertinent and relevant question because uh, my partner and I were actually, we are, uh, have been going to like different antique stores actually in and oh, around wow. local in Tucson. And we're currently looking for uh, a different bed frame. I think we're finally at the point where we've gotten tired of our Ikea yeah. particle board stuff. And so we're really looking for, you know, Furniture. locally made or 
yeah, yeah good furniture. I, yeah, I still haven't passed the IKEA phase. <laughs> well, I, I think I made some progress because for a while we slept directly on the floor. Um, because my first child was horrible with sleeping, so in the end, like, was sleeping with us. But I was always afraid it would fall from the bed. We just put the the uh, mattress. On. <laughs> but some, but now we do have a bed, and the child sleeps in his room. Uh, uh, for me that was already progress but it's great that you guys have <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i think uh, i think we might be punching above our uh sort of uh, budget that's allowing <laughs> us so we're so we're being cautious here but yeah, it's been I a mean, lot of fun going to local antique stores and what seeing kind of ancient, beds you know. are you looking for i my so it's funny because my grandmother had this antique store too and here in Italy wow. and she gave me this um, when I was um, a kid but I used it throughout my teenage years but I had this bed uh, in Italy it's called like the tr literal translation is boat bed but it's um, you know it, it's a bed that has like wood um, I don't know like barriers and <laughs> it's like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the head of the bed but also the bottom of the bed and it yep. was extremely noisy. <laughs> yeah, the, um, I I kind of didn't like that. But but anyway, yeah, yeah, it was good looking, um, very noisy. Yeah. But I was wondering, what kind of beds are you looking for? Um, I, I mean, actually, more. something like that sounds good to us. <laughs> but <laughs> good luck on the purchase of uh, your new bed. We'll need it. We'll need it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at theclimatescientist.com where you can find more information about our other activities, including research paper snippets, videos, and a blog on research in climate science. Email us to ask any questions or to participate in the show.